everybody welcome back to another episode of hitchcock happy hour i'm sarah shaw and i'm lydia jordan and today we are continuing our cult classic month with the probably like most famous cult classic of all time 1975 rocky horror picture show it is the cultiest of classics and the campiest of camp for sure for sure. It is immaculate. I love this movie. <laughs> and the songs are so catchy. They really are. So catchy. They really, really are. Um, yeah, this movie is just so interesting. <laughs> like, it's just really hard to understand why and where and how, but I like it. <laughs> yeah, and we'll talk about it because, I mean, this is such an interesting film that got made at such an interesting time, and I just think that... Um, it, it's cool how that happened. So we'll kind of talk a little bit more about that once we actually get into the bulk of the episode. Well, I'm really excited to talk about it because I think one of the biggest um, questions I think surrounding this film for people that are new to it is, okay, why is this movie so famous? And I think there's a lot of actually really interesting and really good reasons why this movie um, really spoke to a very, very um, kind of often overlooked a uh, group of people in society at the time and and still resonates with a lot of people now so it's a really interesting movie very very important to a lot of people and I'm really excited to talk about it but before we jump in Lydia what are we drinking today well New York Times called it the cocktail of the summer and so we had to try it uh we are drinking a dirty Shirley today so it's I mean it's kind of a it's it's the grown-up Shirley Temple it is vodka Lemon lime soda. Your choice of Sprite or Seven Up. I am personally Team Seven Up, and it's not a Shirley oh, Temple. Oh, I'm Team to me. Sprite. Oh, oh rivalry. no, <laughs> rivalry. A house divided. <laughs> <laughs> um, and then you add that grenadine for color. Um, and if you're us, you also pour in some of the maraschino cherry juice because we're cherry addicts. And then you garnish with like. Five to ten maraschino cherries. You do you. Yeah. You do you. And I don't know, for some reason, like, even though a Shirley Temple isn't, like, super cherry for... I don't know. I just... That was my... The maraschino cherry is my favorite part of a Shirley Temple. So, I wanted this to be a little bit more um, cherry forward. I think what would be really... I like... I really like it. What would be really good as well is adding, like, cherry juice, too. I think that could be kind of... You could probably use that instead of grenadine, but grenadine gives it the fun color, so... It does. It does. Yeah. Um, but it's, it's, it's really good. Um, not sure if I quite am sold on it being the whole, like, cocktail of the summer thing, but maybe by the end of this episode, by the end of this drink, we'll, we'll feel differently, so we'll stay agree tuned. with the New York Times. <laughs> we'll circle back about it. And, um, if you guys haven't yet, we, uh, have a really fun, uh, cocktail, uh, that Lydia created kind of a DIY with a jam jar that seems to really resonate with a lot of people. <laughs> so yeah. if you, if you're interested, um, check out our TikTok and, and check out our, all of our cocktail, uh, videos and including that one. Cause I would, I would argue that that could be the cocktail of the summer. I agree. And so does pop sugar. So hell yeah, they do. Thanks. Shout out to, <laughs> Shout pop, out sugar to pop sugar <laughs> for featuring our <laughs> cocktail in an article that was 
probably one of the weirdest days of my life when you called me and were like, Pop Sugar just did an article about your stupid TikTok video. You didn't say it like that, but that's how I always think <laughs> I didn't about it. say it like videos. that at all. I, know, I said it. I called I you and I said, oh my God, Pop Sugar did an article I know, about but it. I always just think every time I make one of those cocktail videos, like I have so much fun, but I'm like, what is, what is like stupid little video I'm making? You know what I mean? Like it's, it's not like meaningful, but I have so much fun doing it, but it's like, it's always interesting. Clearly it's meaningful to... 300,000 yeah. people. We found, that we found it. our audience and it's Jim and Jam girlies only. So if you're a gin and a jam girly, I uh, highly recommend that you check that out because it is delicious. And I've been drinking it on repeat, uh, finishing up all the jars of jam that have been kicking around my fridge. So think go. of it as like recycling. It's, I don't know. It's like upcycling. <laughs> <laughs> oh my God. But. Um, yeah, I, we'll see. We'll, we'll circle back about this being the cocktail of the summer, so stay tuned, and, and we'll revisit that. Uh, if you guys have been paying attention, which uh, you, know, you may or may not have, we had a certain look and feel for the last year of being a podcast uh, that was very uh, part of the look and dialectic of Hitchcock films. We have decided that we are our own people, so we did a little rebrand. So we just rebranded. Everything's super cute. Definitely check it, it out. We love it. We're feels, super happy. We think it feels represents more fitting. us a little bit more. It definitely is because more indicative of us and less tied to our Hitchcockian roots. Which we love, and we it is our origin story. And we actually were back and forth about renaming this podcast. We, in fact, were going to rename this podcast <laughs> we until were. an article wrote about our podcast. And, or a news, uh, like an online like article. There was an article about our podcast. So we couldn't change the name. So, <laughs> so Hitchcock here we are. Artist. <laughs> couldn't change the name, but we have a fresh new look, which hopefully means at some point when we make merch. Every, I don't know why I screamed it like that. but yeah when we hopefully make merch one day uh it will be much much more cute than what it was before so we moved away from the orange i'm sorry if you loved it but we're embracing um what some might call an emerald green (laughs) a dark a deep emerald i will never live this down (laughs) no no you won't Uh, apparently it's my aura now if I, even if I don't want it to be yeah you can't like, escape it, it out in the world or in this fucking podcast you hear <laughs> both of us are wearing green right now as well because it is also my aura color and uh, there we go so we're green we're green people over here <laughs> I love it I love it for us well so, yeah look forward to that so um going forward our content might have a little bit of a different look and feel but we're super excited about it again we just feel like it's more true to who we are and what we feel like this podcast is and hopefully what it will become so um what we talk about is gen- generally going to remain the same we're going to do movies and drink cocktails which is what you guys know and love and it's what you come here for I assume so on that note, let's talk about movies. <laughs> let's talk about movies. So let's just dive on in. There's so much to cover. Um, as like a quick uh, overview, a table of contents, if you will, for this episode. <laughs> <laughs> we'll start with a quick overview, then we'll get into the plot. Next, we'll talk about production because it's it's just wild. Um, then we'll talk about reception for the film and like meaning of this film like why it became so popular and then we'll end with some trivia i'm excited i don't know if trivia is the right word but it's more like fun facts and then i'm gonna ask you some questions so, oh my god it oh is trivia god. i know we're mixing so it up today. i I'm love it when we do the this script <laughs> just like this movie did on the film industry absolutely 
Maybe yeah. not immediately, but eventually. But it got there, and we love that. All right. Well, without further ado, The Rocky Horror Picture Show is a 1975 musical comedy horror film by 20th Century Fox. It was pre- produced by Lou Adler and Michael White and was directed, directed by Jim Sharman. The screenplay was written by Sharman and actor Richard O'Brien, who is also a member of the cast. Do you know who Richard is? Is he Rocky? No. Is he the butler guy? Yeah, he plays Riff Raff. Riff Raff. I can remember his name. He also like the bald butler. Yeah, you're like the bald one with the weird hair. Um, yeah. Yeah, so he plays Riff Raff in the film, which is hilarious. And he also sings the opening title Oh, song. I did not know yeah, that. Yeah, so it's Magenta's Lips, but it's mm-hmm. him singing. So anyways, just a fun, fun fact. When I brush my hair, I resemble Magenta. Yes. Yes, you do. <laughs> I love Magenta. She's my She's favorite. my favorite. Yeah, if I does. ever, next time I go to Rocky Horror, slash my first time going as a, as a Rocky Horror virgin, I will dress up like Magenta. Yeah, she's the best. I always dress up as her, obviously, because it's easy for me. <laughs> she's, yeah, you're like, all I need to do is put on like a little maid outfit, and we're good to go. <laughs> and brush my hair, <laughs> we're good to go. You know, easy peasy. Um, the film is based on the 1973 musical stage production by the same name, um, with music, book, and lyrics by O'Brien. The production is a parody tribute to the science fiction and horror B-movies of the 1930s through the early 1960s. And along with O'Brien, the film stars Tim Curry, our girl, Susan Sarandon, Barry Bostwick, and is narrated by Charles Gray. Um, and it includes original cast members, which is really cool, from their um, theater run in London. So um, they had a couple different runs in London and then also in the U.S. So this includes different cast members from each of those productions, which is really cool. This cast is actually pretty big as well. It is. Me. Yeah, it's quite the ensemble cast. So... It's, it's so fun. Um, it's still in limited release in 2022, 46 years after its premiere, which makes it the longest running theatrical release in film history. So pretty cool. Wow. Yeah, because min- there are places that just do the midnight showings like all they the do. time. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Well, let's dive into the plot because it is very uh wild wild (laughs) um i'll also include the name of the songs because that is super fun and if yeah and if you don't if you've never seen this movie and you're like what like you hear this plot and you're like what the fuck is this movie about it's not really about the plot so just still watch it (laughs) it's about the spectacle of it all yes and And the music is amazing it's about tim curry i was gonna say this is a tim curry production like that's and that's we'll, we'll get to it but anyways all right, so the film starts with the opening credits for the main cast with the song Science Fiction Double Feature with one of, I mean, the most iconic opening sequences of all time. This has become such a major part of popular culture. If you haven't seen this movie before, you've definitely seen something that alludes to this opening title. And, and basically, it's a pair of, like, these red lips that are suspended in this, like, black like blackness singing this opening title sequence it does like this little lip bite at uh, during part of it which you, again you've definitely seen it's so iconic yeah. it's amazing it's very iconic any type of like black like li- red lips suspended in like darkness is like very much an homage to this movie yeah so the movie starts with uh, a wedding which is very fun where we meet uh, our two 
heroines, our main leading ladies and gentlemen, I don't know, um, where it's, it's just so great. I love how campy and weird it is and like the weird, like allusion to like, what's, what's that one thing? The American Gothic. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Oh, the face. Again, it just, it just starts out weird. So anyways, they're at another person's wedding. They end up getting engaged then a criminologist narrates the tale of this newly engaged couple, Brad Majors and Janet Weiss. Brad and Janet, aren't there? They are Damn it, Janet. virgins. <laughs> they are major virgins they as are well. It's very virgins. important. <laughs> it is very important. Yeah. Damn yeah. it, Janet, though. Great song. Damn it, Janet Damn is it, the, Janet. my favorite. It's so I good. I love you. Yeah, it's so good. So they find themselves, after this wedding, lost and with a flat tire on a cold and rainy November night in 1974. Seeking a telephone, the couple walks to a nearby castle um, to the song over at the Frankenstein place, which is (laughs) hilarious. There they discover an ongoing annual Transylvanian convention where they meet the Igor-like Riff Raff, his French-made sister Magenta, and a groupie named Columbia. They then sing... Probably one of the most iconic songs from this film, Time Warp. Time Warp is so good. You would think Time Warp is at the end because it's like the most famous song. It's literally the first like, 20 minutes of the movie. <laughs> um, yeah, it's so cute. I was also looking up as part of research for this film, um, just like the rituals for this show. And it was really cute because they have all these like virgin guides to your first Rocky Horror show of like the things you should do. And one of them had like written and like printed instructions for the time warp that you can print and bring Aww. with you it's like really wholesome oh my god <laughs> that's really cute <laughs> yeah it's it's so good um we are then introduced to the incomparable dr frank inferter who is a cross-dressing <laughs> bisexual mad scientist and also an alien <laughs> Um, who introduced basically himself. a choose your own adventure choose of a your, I mean I feel like there are not enough adjectives to properly describe who Dr. Frankenfurter is or what Great he's about song. <laughs> their intro is really good as well yeah he comes out to sweet transvestite which it's again so good I've been singing it nonstop since yeah. I watched this like multiple days Tim ago. Curry performs in this no. movie like super method. Like, he it's is amazing. He is immaculate in this role. Like he, yeah, he just embodies Frankenfurter and we love it. Agreed. We love it. So in his lab, Frankenfurter claims to have discovered the secret to life itself and brings to life his creation, a tall, muscular, handsome blonde named Rocky. Um, the sort, the sort of Democles is the the song that he sings. Very exciting. Frank vows he can improve Rocky into an ideal man in a week with the song "I Can Make You a Man." Then a delivery boy named Eddie, um, half of whose brain Frank had used in the creation of Rocky, then breaks out of a deep freeze riding on a motorcycle and interrupts Frank, um, getting the Transylvanians dancing and singing to the song "Hot Patootie." <laughs> <laughs> When it's Rocky, so good. It's so good. It's so random. Like again, it's this so this film makes no sense, but but it's so it. it's like it it does make sense because the movie is so random. So like when something like if something not random happened, it would be weird. Exactly. It's also one of those films that I feel like when I was watching it, I didn't get like bored or like want to check my phone. Like I was in it. I was having a great time. Like it is just so fun to watch, even if you're alone. <laughs> I love yeah, it. Yeah, agree, agree. <laughs> 
When Rocky starts dancing and enjoying the performance, a jealous Frank kills Eddie with a pickaxe. Frank justifies Eddie's murder as a mercy killing to Rocky, and then they depart to the bridal suite with the song, I Can Make You a Man, reprise. (laughs) (laughs) So good. So good. Brad and Janet are shown to separate bedrooms where each is visited and seduced by Frankenfurter, who poses as Brad when visiting Janet and then as Janet when visiting Brad. The scene is amazing, by the way. It is. so funny. I mean, the comedy is incredible. It's perfect. I love it. Although each of them is initially against having sexual relations with Frank, each quickly relents. Janet, upset and emotional after having lost her virginity to Frank, wanders off to find Brad, whom she sees smoking a cigarette in bed with Frank on a video monitor. She then discovers Rocky, who is cowering in his birth tank, hiding from Riffraff and Magenta, who are tormenting him. While tending to his wounds, Janet, upset that Brad had slept with Frank, decides to become intimate with Rocky as Magenta and Columbia watch from their bedroom monitor to the song, Touch it, touch it, touch it, touch me. <laughs> it's so good. The way you said that. Touch it, touch it, touch it, touch me. Touch me. <laughs> How else are you supposed to say it? No other way. Absolutely no other way. After discovering that Rocky is missing, Frank returns to the lab with Brad and Riff Raff, where Frank learns that an intruder has entered the building. Ooh. Ooh. A Dr. Everett Scott, who both um, Janet and Brad know because it's their former science teacher. (laughs) So of course it is. Of course. Um, He's not... No longer a science teacher, however, because now he investigates UFOs for the government? Question mark? <laughs> I mean, why not? Yeah, which which alarms Frank. Frank is very disturbed by this. Um. Anyways, where did... I lost my spot. Da, 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 da. Dr. Scott explains that he is there in search of his nephew, Eddie, who you might remember as uh, the guy who rode in on a motorcycle earlier and was killed by Dr. Frankenfurter. But with a pickaxe. But with a pickaxe. Um, anyways, so Dr. Scott assures Frank that his presence at the castle is a coincidence and unrelated to UFO, UFO work. Frank, Dr. Scott, Brad, and Riffraff then discover Janet and Rocky together angering Frank and Brad. At this point, Magenta sounds the gong to summon everyone to dinner. Rocky and the guests share an uncomfortable dinner, which they soon realize has been prepared from Eddie's mutilated remains. Gross. Janet runs screaming into Rocky's arms, provoking Frank to chase her through the halls uh, to the song Planet Schmanet Janet. (laughs) (laughs) The names of these songs are so so good. Uh, They're about to get better. Janet, Brad, Dr. Scott, Rocky, and Columbia all meet in Frank's lab where Frank captures them with the Medusa Transducer, transforming them into into nude statues um, to the song Planet Hot Dog. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> i know songs are so it's good. so good after dressing them in cabaret costumes frank unfreezes them and they perform a live cabaret floor show complete with an rko tower and a swimming pool uh frank is obviously leading the way in this and he is absolutely killing it um the song name here is Rose Tint My World slash Don't Dream It Be It slash Wild and Untamed Thing, in case you were wondering. <laughs> they just, like, couldn't pick one. They're like, whatever. So just, they went, they're like, all in there. 
It's very reminiscent of how they came up with the name Invasion of the Body it Snatchers. Was. Oh my god. <laughs> world be what was it? It was like uh, world like Oh god, I can't remember now, but it was so It was there was like body snatchers slash World in Danger. Uh, <laughs> world in danger like slash that. invasion of body snatchers. It was very similar to that. Invasion of the Defilers of Tombs. <laughs> Never forget. Similar vibes. Anyway. Similar vibes. Anyways, yeah. Couldn't pick one. Put it all in there and we're not mad. See what Go happens. Go for it. <laughs> Riff Raff and Magenta, who are now in space cadet attire and like very cool hairdos, <clears throat> interrupt the performance and they inform that Frank, they inform Frank that he has failed their mission. Riff Raff declares himself commander, and Frank attempts to explain himself, believing he'll be taken as prisoner. Um, song here is I'm Going Home. But Riff Raff kills both him and Columbia using a pitchfork-shaped ray gun. An enraged Rocky gathers Frank's corpse in his arms and climbs to the top of the tower, impervious to Riff Raff's ray gun beams, and then plunges to his death in the pool below. So, R.I.P. to both uh, Rocky and Dr. Frankenfurter. Riff Raff and Magenta state that they will be returning to their home planet, Transsexual, in the galaxy of Transylvania. (laughs) (laughs) Warning. It's amazing. I love it. It never gets old. Warning, Brad, Janet, and Dr. Scott to leave immediately before the castle lifts off into space. The injured... That's right. The castle is their spaceship. It's their spaceship. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. The injured survivors are then left crawling in the smog and dirt, and the narrator concludes that the human race is equivalent to insects crawling on the planet's surface, lost in time and lost in space, and meaning. Ooh. Ooh. And that is the end of the plot. Again, it makes no sense. You don't come for the plot. You come for... The spectacle of it No, all. there's no conclusion at all. <laughs> like, it's amazing. There's no beginning, middle, or end, really. I mean, incredible. Apparently everything... It's genius. It is. Apparently everything you learned in your, like, high school writing class about how to structure a story was wrong, because this has no structure, wrong. and it's absolutely brilliant. And it's the longest-running limited release of all time, so clearly... They need to redo the high school curriculum of writing class. Um, all right. Well, without further ado, let's jump into the production. Because, again, I feel like it's very interesting how this all came to be. So Richard O'Brien, who plays Riff Raff in the film, was living as an unemployed actor in London during the early 1970s. He had just come off um, being cast in Jesus Christ Superstar. Um, but like overall his career just wasn't really like, he wasn't making it. Like he hadn't hit it big. He was kind of like in this weird place in his life where I think he was kind of reevaluating things. Things just like weren't going super well for him. So he wrote the Rocky Horror Show during one winter to partly kind of explore like what was going on with this like kind of failed acting thing. I think he wanted to see like if he had what it took but also to explore his own sexuality. So that's, I think, again, very much a big part of the Rocky Horror um, picture show. Since his youth, he had always loved science fiction and B-horror movies, and he wanted to combine these elements that have this like really funny, unintentional horror um, with portentous dialogue of schlock horror, Steve's Reeves muscle flicks, and also 50s rock and roll into a musical. Like he wanted to create this rock musical. 
So he conceived and wrote the play set against the backdrop of a glam era that manifested itself in British popular culture in the 1970s. Um, I watched a really interesting interview with him. Most of the research that I did for this was um, watching this VH1 behind the music documentary from like a million years ago. You can find it on YouTube. It's hilarious because they have ads at one point for like a CD store. So definitely amazing. It, it tells you when this came out and it's perfect. Um, so anyways, um, through this like documentary though, he talks about, um, like how he really regrets that he hadn't been born a girl. And so he really connected to this sexy androgynism that was defined by this glam rock era with, you know, stars like David Bowie, um, who was very much in his like Ziggy Stardust phase at this point. Um, and so What's interesting is this was kind of happening and then inspiration really came to him in the form of this Fredericks of Hollywood ad, which I think is hilarious. They showed it in the documentary, but this ad, Genius Marketing, proclaimed, don't dream it, be it, which you might recognize as one of the lyrics from um, the, let me find the name of the song, Rose Tint My World slash Don't Dream It, Be It slash Wild and Untamed Thing. Um which is what they sing during their cabaret performance. Um, so what's interesting is he was really inspired by this and he loved how this illust like it has this funny like illustrated models that he feels like kind of look like drag queens because the proportions are just like so outlandish, like their boobs are so big. Um, but anyways, he was really inspired by this and just, again, like channeled this certain aesthetic into his, his music and into the script. So he showed a portion of this unfinished script to Australian director Jim Jim Sharman, who decided to direct it at the small experiential space upstairs at the Royal Court Theatre. Um, and this was a space that was used for mostly kind of like new work, exper experimental work, things like that. Um, like I mentioned, O'Brien had appeared briefly in a stage production of Andrew Lloyd Webber's Jesus Christ Superstar, which was directed by Charmin, so that's how they knew each other. They had also worked together previously in Sam Shepard's The Unseen Hand. Um, and Charmin would then bring in production designer Brian Thompson and um, Sue Blaine, who did the costumes, um, as well as musical director Richard Hartley and stage producer Michael White. As the musical went into rehearsal, the working title, they came from Denton High, which was not great, um, was changed just before previews at the suggestion of Charmin to the Rocky Horror Show. So yeah, definitely <laughs> a better, a better, um, yeah. So when it, title. when it opened in 1973, it was insanely popular. It became the hottest ticket in town. They ended up having to move to a much larger theater. I think, I can't remember how many seats were in the Royal Court Theater. I think it was like probably less than a hundred. They ended up having, I would kill yeah. to see like the original live oh, performance. Of yeah, this. I would too. It would be so interesting. It's also very, it feels very reminiscent. Like you said of that, like glam rock, like London Soho, um, Ziggy Dar Stardust era. Like it's exactly that. It's, it would be so interesting to see this. Absolutely. As a live production. Yeah. In it must time. have been so yeah. cool. And so anyways, they ended up having to move to a much larger venue. They moved to a 500-seat theater. So, I mean, I'm, this was insanely popular. In fact, speaking of David Bowie, it was so popular that he he went to the show, as did Vincent Price. So oh wow, people really loved the show, and it was, like, the hottest ticket in town. So it, it opened with very – it was very successful, which I thought was interesting. Yeah, So definitely. this – 
production ended up reaching Lou Adler all the way in Hollywood. Um, Lou Adler was a rock and roll legend. He was known for his work with the Mamas and Papas. And in January of 1974, he flew to London um, after hearing all about this show. And after seeing it, he signed it to come to America. And it opened at the Los Angeles Rocky Roxy Theater. So... Oh, cool. There you go. little history there. Little, yeah. yeah. So Tim Curry was brought to the U.S. to reprise his role. Um, and that's where young Meatloaf joined the American cast. <laughs> <laughs> young Meatloaf. Wow. Young Meatloaf. Baby Meatloaf. Um, Baby Meatloaf. Yeah. And it's funny because he talks about the first time that he saw Tim Curry, like, do the like sweet transvestite seat and he was so like disturbed by it that he ended up leaving like he got up and left oh yeah but then he, little meatloaf i know he's sweet little under sweet a little undercooked little undercooked sweet meatloaf here um but the next day he, he ended up getting fitted for his own heels because he used to also play the doctor as well as um eddie <laughs> oh so, interesting okay so apparently yeah uh, he came back around <laughs> So it had only been 10 months since it first debuted, and and at this point, it was a success on both sides of the Atlantic. So it was wildly popular. In fact... So live production is, is doing, doing really, really well. It's doing really well. Um, in fact, Elvis attended. He was originally supposed to... People wanted him to play um, Eddie, um, but he actually went. He oh, really liked it. Um, Carol King came dressed up to see oh, it. Yeah, she yeah, did. She did. My queen, I love that. And Adler ended up inviting uh, the head of 20th Century Fox at the time, Golden Stolberg, to come see it. And he, like, recounts in this documentary, like, wondering why he was there. I mean, it's very out there. <laughs> um, but he said that Curry's performance and his connection with the audience just, like, electrified him. And it convinced him to sign a deal the next day to produce a movie version of the of this play um for a little over a million dollars so kind of wow. crazy yeah after this wow. uh the crew had just six weeks to turn the show into a movie it was it's interesting that it was inspired by b horror because this was very much set up to be a b movie it had a very small production budget um in lieu of choosing to have a higher production value with the stipulation that they had to have a hot, like a star-studded cast. Um, instead, Lou Adler was very adamant about wanting to maintain um, the cast that they had and introducing a few new newcomers. But I feel like that's really rare now for movie adaptations. Like we saw this with Les Mis. Um, we've seen this with other other like you know shows to films. Um, there's a Mamma Mia. There's a tendency to cast big name actors and really lean into that star power instead of recognizing the really talented, um, you know, stage actors who who make these musicals a success. Um, so it was cool that they chose not to do that. They turned down more money um, and decided to go with a cast that, you know, really embody this film. Like I couldn't imagine Rocky Horror Picture Show without Tim Curry. Like you, it just doesn't exist. <laughs> Is Susan Sarandon, is this like her first role or one of her first? She wasn't it famous It wasn't yet, her first role, but it was very early in her career. Yeah. Because she must have been, and I don't know if Tim Curry was a big movie actor yet. 
So he wasn't a big movie actor, but Tim Curry and Susan Sarandon were friends. So she actually went to go visit him one time, and that's partly how she got cast in this role, allegedly. So were they well known at the time, like when when the movie made already, or was I don't it fairly, think so. Like, I think she was still a pretty really. young actress. Like she probably had a little bit more like star power than like a Tim Curry or any of the other cast members, since they were predominantly stage actors. And I think at this point she had been in some some film and television. Um, but on the whole, it's not like she was like a heavy hitter. Yeah, I don't think at the time this movie had any, like, stars in it. No, that's not the point. Um, According to everyone who worked on this film, it was probably one of the most uncomfortable filming situations ever. They shot on location um, in London. The castle that you see is actually a real castle outside of London. It's in England. And it was pretty ramshackled. They were filming long hours, and it's a very highly energetic and physical show on top of that, it was raining constantly, and they were also, for the most part, soaking wet for a lot of their scenes and basically naked. Um, in fact, the conditions were so bad that Susan Sarandon actually got pneumonia almost like immediately. <laughs> um, oh God, yeah, I yeah. was gonna say she. I think someone got. Pneumonia. Yeah, everyone. I think was really relieved when filming wrapped. I I think I read somewhere that someone cried, but I don't think it was like tears of joy. I think they were like literally <laughs> so relieved that filming was done because this. This film didn't have a long timeline for filming. I think it was filmed no. so it was long days. Again, the conditions were terrible. There wasn't like a working bathroom at this castle. It was very Spartan. <laughs> you yeah, couldn't have had very... some, some name brand actors in this because I mean, yeah, the treatment. It was very. It yeah, feels like on a. Location. It feels like a violation. I don't think that would fly now. Yeah, probably. It was probably not a building that was up to code at all. No, absolutely not. Um, it was very much falling into disarray. Then they talked about how there were holes in the roof, so there would just be water pouring not, in when it was raining. <laughs> it kind of makes them. I mean, it makes it a little like for how low budget yeah. it is. It feels pretty like realistic. No, like the castle itself the feels pretty like realistic. Are amazing. Like this, they're so they're, great. Because it's like an actual yeah, dilapidated it is building. it's perfect so we just kind of talked through the production i'm not going to go much more in depth than that um i think there's other things you could probably cover but just for the sake of time and brevity let's move along to the reception um this film was a flop i mean it had done super well um in the theaters it made less than three hundred thousand dollars in its initial box office run like it did really, really poorly. So they had a budget of a million and it made like less than half of that. Yeah. Ooh, like bad. a third. It made Not less good. than a third. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So. Yeah. That's no I good. I mean, by <laughs> all means, this movie was absolutely a failure. And it was at this weird point where I think it could have been lost to obscurity. And a lot of the people who were involved in, in the film are kind of, I don't know that they expected it to be like a critical success, but at the same time, like. It was kind of a weird moment. So there was a lot of like uncertainty about the future of the film. You know, none like 20th Century Fox wasn't looking to continue to, you know, pay to have this film in theaters because it was performing so poorly. And, you know, a lot of theaters weren't having anyone come, so they weren't making any money. So overall, it was just a mess and it was kind of at this weird turning point. Enter Tim Deegan, who was a young marketing executive at 20th Century Fox, and he's really the one who pulled it from potentially the brink of obscurity. So he came up with this radical strategy that wasn't really done at this time, and it was to book the show at midnight. So he contacted a few different theaters, and he finally got it placed at the Waverly. The first night, 
it sold 100 tickets, and then the next day they doubled it, and from there, the rest is kind of history. So after that, they were able to use the Waverly to show success for these midnight showings and were able to add it to more theaters and more cities, which really allowed it to continue its run. And it, Wow, the, yeah. the night prowlers get I know. Um, so it's life at the Waverly is really what began to create this cult following that we know today. It began with people coming together just because they loved the movie. Um, but then it began with people like yelling out a few lines and then slowly the tradition that we now know as, you know, kind of the Rocky horror experience really began to take shape. Um, with people dressing so up. So the the initial midnight shows was just it was just like a regular movie going experience, but at yeah, midnight. but at midnight and people would kind of like yell a few lines like there's some like repartee, but but people weren't really dressing up at this point. It doesn't have kind of that same like theater like interaction that we now associate with Rocky Horror. Yeah. So let's talk a little bit about the traditions for the Rocky Horror Show because I feel like this is really fun. So there's a couple different elements that make this such an interactive and experiential movie experience. Um, the first is there's there's some like props that I feel like are really fun. So during the opening sequence with the wedding, rice is thrown, um, which is interesting. Some theaters don't allow that because again, this is pretty messy. They also have water. People bring, like, water guns. Rice? Like, why rice? Because it's a wedding. You know, you throw rice at weddings. Oh, oh, at the... Oh, right, right. I'm like, like, what's a wedding tradition? I've, like, never been to a wedding. They're like, yeah, you know, just everyone eats, like, a bucket of rice. (laughs) Bring your own rice. (laughs) That's so funny. Oh, my God. Um... So during the song, there's a light when Brad and Janet are walking through the rain. People will bring like squirt guns, like filled with water and like squirt water That's everywhere, so which funny. is really fun. I feel like, I feel like the one I went to was like pretty tame. Like yeah. it was just people dressed up and singing and dancing. I, I feel like we should more. try to go like see it in New York when we're there next time. Like I think that would that be the way would to be do fun. it. Yeah. <laughs> um, that would be super. At fun. the end of the song, Planet Schmanet Janet, um, various characters call Frank a hot dog, and so at that point, people would hurl hot dogs at the screen. So, <laughs> this seems like a little bit like it's just kind of defiling the movie well, and, theater. And that I was, feel like the cleanup yeah, crew like no, hates truly. This. And that was a lot of like the responses. I, I think most of the moviegoers didn't really think about it, but yeah, the, the movie crews who had to clean up after were like, fuck these guys. <laughs> yeah, it can get a little rowdy. Yeah. There's also a call and response element. So every time a character says Brad's name, the audience shouts asshole. Um Every time someone says Janet's name, they shout slut, which I think is kind of mean, but apparently it's funny in the right bit, context. A little bit of an outdated Feels a little outdated. Though, but okay. Um, there's also this, this is one of my favorite scenes in the movie when during Sweet Transvestite, Frank takes a super long pause when saying anticipation. Um, and in between, like, the silence between those words, the audience screams, say it! <laughs> Which I think is really fun. <laughs> say it! <laughs> so anyways, if you ever go... I love that. I just love it. It's just, like, the most collective it thing. Is. Like, it's the most, like, feeling like a community that I feel like for a lot of people that just didn't have yeah. that, that's what's so important about this. Absolutely. So just to give some historical context, I think I'm not going to go super in depth about 
the history here because I think there's a lot of other people who A, have done it better and B, we like just don't have time for that. Um, but just to give some context, like this is six years after the Stonewall riots. So LGBTQ visibility and rights are very much an ongoing issue, especially in New York. This is, I would say like a pretty hot topic. Like people are very aware of this. Um, I think there is like a growing LGBTQ presence. Like there is like a stronghold in New York that makes it a really unique, um, a unique city in America and kind of what everyone is watching when it comes to, um, like gay rights. Um, this is also happening at the same time as Studio 54, which is really interesting. Um, if you are interested in Studio 54, one of my favorite podcasts, Hollywood Crime Scene, did a really great um, three-part, I believe, episode on on Studio 54. So if you want to learn more about that, definitely check that out. Um, There's also a great documentary on Studio 54 yeah. on HBO Max, I believe. Yes. I think it's just called Studio 54. It is. It's very it's interesting. Really good. And, Studio 54 is, like, one of the most fascinating things to me. Like, the cultural phenomena that is Studio 54 is... I'm so intrigued by it as a as a thing. Um, it's, like, one of my top... Like, if I could travel back in time and do something, like, it's one of my top... Like, I would love to go peak Studio like, 54 and I just think that too, go and experience that. But they were so that. selective about who they let in. I'm like, would I have made it? <laughs> I think that the... I think just, like, if you just did the crazier thing that you did... The yeah, better. That's true. I don't know. I mean, if we're from the future, I think we can figure out how to fucking get yeah, into Studio Fair 54. enough. Fair enough. Um, but I think that what's interesting is whereas Studio 54 was really focused on exclusivity, I mean, they handpicked the crowd who would be in Studio 54 for that night. Like, it was very exclusive, it was where everyone wanted to be. Um, but not everyone got to be part of it. It was like, you know, they picked who they wanted to be part of that experience. And if you weren't picked, then you couldn't be part of it. So it was almost like the party outside of Studio 54 was like more of an inclusive yeah. party than like getting exactly. selected to go in Studio 54. But what's interesting is I think that Rocky Horror is such an antithesis of that because it is, it's open to everyone. So whereas, you know, Studio 54 was really much focused around that exclusivity, Rocky Horror provides a space where everybody's welcome. It's open to everyone. Um, and it's, it's a space where everyone can come together and watch this weird campy movie. <laughs> and it's, yeah, a foil. A se. foil. Um, and then finally the AIDS pandemic started about five years later. So this was kind of in between, like perfectly situated in between Stonewall riots and then the, the AIDS and HIV crisis. So there was kind of this lull, I think, um, in between and this is like kind of perfectly positioned in the middle which I thought was interesting so let's talk a little bit about the meaning of this film because I'm not going to go too much into it I'm interested to get your take Sara but I think that why this film resonated so much not just at the time but also continues to be relevant 45 46 years later is that it provided a space open to everyone and it celebrated being different um a lot of people found solace and community with rocky horror um i've i read some articles claiming that you know it saved people's lives like it especially for the lgbtqia plus community this film really provided them representation in a space to safely explore sexuality and nonconformity um in a way that was really celebrated and where it wasn't shamed and i think that that's what's so special about 
um, this show and I think why it continues to be such an important part of our popular culture is it is like a really it's a really cool story and like movie to be made that really does celebrate everyone and being different so yeah no I I absolutely agree and I think why this movie is so popular and I think it's exactly for the reason why people think why is this movie so popular like this movie is so weird it's so different it has so many strange aspects to it that you'd be you could be like who would like this like this is such a weird movie but I think that's how a lot of people feel about themselves I think there's a there's a, a large community of people especially at this time that this came out, that probably felt that they were the only one that was like them and that it, it made them feel isolated. And when they saw this movie, it, I mean, it, it and saw that other people were relating to it, it gives you a sense of community. And I think that's what's so important about it is that it offered people a safe space and kind of a haven from the outside world that judged them and made them feel different and, and kind of made them feel like it's okay to be just who you are. And, and, I think like the the added fact of like they would show this movie at midnight gave it a bit of like a secretive thing to it even though it wasn't secret it just was more like cloaked it 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 still gave it gives you that sense of like okay we're safe this is like a safe space no one can find us no one can hurt us we're all the same and we love each other and I think that's kind of the that's the beauty of the film and I think that's why it's so important I don't really think it necessarily has anything to do with the plot. It's more the story about how the movie got made, the people that were in it, and the kind of meaning of, like, the culture surrounding the movie and the marketing of it being released at midnight and kind of the types of characters that are in the movie. I think that's what's... I think that's why it's... It is what it is, and it's become such a cultural phenomenon. I think that's why it's defined as, like, the ultimate cult classic, because that's what a cult classic is. It makes people relate on a level that they thought they were alone. I love that. Well, that's kind of all I had for, like, the meaning and, like, analysis. So I don't know if there's anything else you wanted to add before we jump into fun facts. <laughs> and trivia. No, I feel like I'm nervous for my quote. Oh, it should be, it'll be fun, I promise. <laughs> okay, so... First, I wanted to start out by talking about Tim Curry's accent in this movie. Um, Because he actually, in the original play, started out Dr. Frankenfurter with a German accent. Um, But then he changed that after he heard a woman on a bus speaking in a highly exaggerated English accent that reminded him of Queen Elizabeth II. So he combined elements of that with his mother's quote-unquote telephone voice which I love that because that is such a thing right like your your phone voice is different than your normal voice oh my god it's so I know but that's what he used to create Dr. Frankenfurter's speaking voice which I love wow wait I love that yeah that's great um in the scene where Dr. Everett Scott crashes through the wall for his entrance um that was partly because the set builders forgot to put in an extra set of doors <laughs> so it was mostly necessity <laughs> so they had to crash <laughs> they're like you have one, one take. take to do this <laughs> so funny don't fuck and it just up just to like drive home how like strapped the like financing of this was they had two sets of corsets during the um during the cabaret scene um one that they would wear and then the other would be left out to dry because they would get like drenched during the pool sequence so like i'm pretty sure that they oh were always God. like partly damp when they were doing that scene again yeah no wonder everyone got pneumonia <laughs> This was, I thought, kind of like a cool fact because 
They really, they really were flying. By yeah, the seat they of their were. Pants they were like, movie. look, <laughs> health and safety. I not love the commitment of how everyone was like. <laughs> Everyone was like, we're still going to make it. We're not shutting this production down. Like, we're making this movie. Definitely a safety violation, but we went for it. I love it. So, I don't know if you also were curious about this, but the green surgical gown that Dr. Frankenfurter wears has a pink triangle over his heart. I don't know if you noticed that. Um, Yeah, that would be for for the, like... AIDS thing, right? No, so it so originally the triangle was used by Nazis in concentration camps to denote like if, if someone was like a gay man. Um but that's with it. Yeah, but but it was like repurposed in the eighties for like AIDS. Right, and but stuff. this is before the eighties. So this is like the start of that though, you're right. Oh yeah. <laughs> duh. I was like I saw you're it like, and I was just like, oh, like that's oh. the I associate it with I associate it with like the AIDS. Yeah. Like, no, because you're not like wrong because then that was later kind of re what's the word that I'm thinking of? Like re like repurposed. Like, not re, like not repurposed, but, but like it's where you t- you you take something that has like a negative connotation but then you like use oh. it to kind of like I don't know yeah you know what I'm trying to say I know what you're talking I know that yeah I well let me know if you know the word because I clearly can't this dirty Shirley really got to I can't me. think of it um, right now. anyways <laughs> she's a but bit dirty when you flip the triangle upside down people kind of reposition this um as a symbol of gay pride so that's reclaim is the Reclaimed. word that I <laughs> no Sorry. thank you I'm glad we got to the bottom of it <laughs> we did we did all right so are ahead. you ready for your okay actually no wait no okay no I'm ready okay in the opening sequence science fiction double feature name two movies that are referenced oh my god I don't remember any movies that were referenced um okay well I'm just gonna make educated guesses about science fiction movies we're going to just go with Invasion of the Body Snatchers because we just talked about no. it. <laughs> Try again. <Damn> it. <laughs> I don't remember. I watched this like last week. I don't remember. Um, okay. Uh, two movies. Um, two science fiction movies. Star Wars. And, and no. Sora. Okay. Star Wars <laughs> came out in like the 80s. <laughs> No, it came out in the seven. The first one was in the seventy-seven or something. But this is seventy-five. <laughs> oh fuck! I'm sorry. God damn it. Okay, I keep. I'm sorry. Um. Oh my god. I like don't know. Uh. Oh, I don't know. Can we just tell you? Okay. Go, tell me. I don't okay, guess. so it it references multiple movies, but among them are. I don't remember. I'm like so mad. Okay. I, oh, okay. Uh, the Go day ahead. the Earth stood still, nineteen fifties classic. Oh yeah. shit! Yeah, Flash okay. Gordon, classic movie. Oh, another The classic. Invisible Man, King Kong, also It Came classic. From Outer Space, Dr. X, Forbidden Planet, Tarantula, Invasion of the Triffids, not the Body Snatchers, sorry. Damn it. Curse <laughs> of the Demon, and Where the Worlds Collide. So there you have wow. it. Wow. Those are the classic B sci-fi movies from the 50s. There you go. Um, well, I did want to note something that I thought was very important to me, a 90s kid, um... Tim Curry and Susan Sarandon would later reunite in the seminal classic film. Oh, no, I was going to say something else. Rugrats in Paris. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I was going to say, similar to that, if you recognize Tim Curry's voice, 
you would recognize him as the voice of Nigel Thornberry yes. from The Well. Also agree. Well, which also is also great. a 90s classic. Also a 90s classic. But yeah, they were reunited. The seminal 90s <laughs> film, Rockers in Paris. Another cult Another classic. Another cult classic. You know, we don't deserve them. Um, and then I'll find I'll I'll land uh, with my final trivia question. Um, after being acquired, who owns the rights to the film now? Can I ha- can I ask? Can I have a hint? Yes or no question. Is it a person? No, it's a company. Okay, okay. Well, that's uh, oh, okay. Did some, did <laughs> I was like, I don't get know. buy the rights. No, to the no, movie? no. It's a company. It's a company. Like, okay, yeah. Is it an unexpected company? No. no. Okay. Universal. No, it's Netflix. It's Disney. Who? I was gonna say Disney yeah. next. That's why I was asking if it was oh, unexpected. Sorry. That is I unexpected. Guess it's kind of unexpected. But I, I no, you're right. Disney, yeah. yeah. So Disney is it on Disney Plus? <laughs> I, this movie I don't Disney know. Plus? Someone let me know. I don't have Disney Plus, but they do own the rights, which I think is I really interesting. Yeah. Um, there was a 2016. Um, version of this film with Laverne Cox as Dr. Frankenfurter. I did not watch it because it just feels wrong, but, um, no, I feel like, I'm not, so I didn't talk about it because I didn't want to watch it. So I think that is, I think there is something to say. And you know, this movie is a product of its time also, even though it is still very progressive for, for the time. However, it is a movie where there's like a cis man playing, although he's not, I think he's gay, but he's not, is Tim Curry gay? He's gay, right? I don't know, but he's not, a, the point is he's not a trans man. And so you have, you have a man playing a trans person. And I think that, you know, there is a conversation to be had about, you know, appropriate casting in, in these kinds of movies. But again, you have to take it for like this movie, much like other movies we talked about, it is a product of its time, even if it is progressive in other ways, I would yeah. say. No, I think that, that that's a great point. Um, I've talked about this before, but definitely check out just- Closure by Laverne Cox. I think she was the director. Um, that was a great film that really explores transness in film. So definitely be sure to give that a watch. While while her version of uh, Rocky Horror Picture Show may have been a flop, I didn't watch it, but it just looked terrible. Um, we love we love Laverne, so definitely give that a. It's a watch. like why mess why mess with with perfection? Perfection. I don't know. <laughs> Anyways. Well, anyway, that that's all I had. <laughs> Great movie. Would you um cult classics are an interesting breed of movie to recommend to people? Would you recommend this movie um to just your average to person my average who's like, "Hey, person, I probably not." Don't know. Like if yeah. I don't know. Okay. If, here's the thing, if someone's not into movies, I don't think that this is a great movie the to one. get into movies because again, it is I found it very I was very interested. Like, I didn't lose interest the entire time. It's such a fast-paced film. There's so much going on. It's, like, kind of all over the place that it keeps you engaged. That being said, if you have right. someone who doesn't like movies, it's pretty out there, which I think is part of the charm. Here's where I think it would be really fun. I would rec- – like, I think it'd be super fun in, like, a group setting. Absolutely. You know, like a, like a sleepover. Party. Like, if you yeah. have friends over for, like, a movie night. Like, that's where I think it would be really fun. But if you're recommending for someone to watch a movie on their own, probably not the movie I'd pick. No, like, just, like, I'm tired after yeah. a long day. I need a good movie to watch. This isn't the one. This was definitely, yeah. like, 
I would recommend this movie because I do think it's one of those ones that everyone should see. No, I agree. Like, I think it, but I definitely think this is the type of movie that needs to be watched at the right time. Like, it's not just something you no. pop on you ca- <laughs> in well, the middle of the day. And I kind of feel like something. you have to know what you're coming into, if you know what I mean. Like, it's not a movie you can just come in and watch necessarily. Like, I still found it really enjoyable, but I think it's important that you understand the context, like the cult following of this film as well as I don't know like I think some of the backstory was really interesting and kind of helps to contextualize um like why it kind of has this place in society the way it does so absolutely I definitely agree so yeah absolutely I'd recommend it though I love this this was so much fun to watch like I generally had I love this movie blast I would recommend everybody once in their life go to a midnight showing of Rocky Horror. It's really fun. It's an experience that's unlike any other experience that you'll have with a movie. It's a it's a in, in a way of engaging in film that is really unique and unlike anything else. And I think it can only be done with this movie. Um, so I would I would recommend doing that. I think that's the best way to watch it. But if you don't have access to that. Just watching it at home with a group of friends is, is pretty fun as well. I, I love this movie. It's hilarious. It's weird. You have no idea what's going on, but you just like can't take your eyes off of it the whole time. And the music the is music great. The music is great. And, and <laughs> Tim phenomenal. Curry is electric. Like he is incredible so to watch. Incredible. Yeah. So good. So good. Um, yeah. Well, thank you for listening to our episode on Rocky Horror Picture Show for our second installment of Cult Classics Month. Um, next week, join us again as we talk about yet another cult classic, the um, beloved film, The Big Lebowski. Very so excited, excited about it. We recently actually just visited the Academy Museum and we saw the dude's costume. Yeah, we did. His robe and slippers and everything from, from the movie, which so was pretty fun. fun. Yeah, definitely yeah, a um, great movie. Um, stellar cast in that and, one. And uh, check out our so, TikTok about, about uh, our experience to the museum if you care to. I had a lot of fun making it. No one watched it. It's fine. <laughs> I watched it a lot of times because I'm in it. I <laughs> so we I had we it. had a good time. <laughs> but yeah, check us out on social. Um, we're on Instagram and TikTok. If you want to just follow what we're talking about, what we're doing, what's coming up in the future um check us out there lydia posts our cocktail recipes she makes the cocktails for you guys on our tiktok so if you're curious as to how to make these cocktails or want to ask questions or give us like suggestions of things to make um feel free to do so we we love hearing from you so um yeah and join us next week when we talk about the big lebowski and to that we say cheers. cheers